Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chamberlain. Welcome, Food and Faith Podcast listeners, to another episode. This is Derek. I'm here with Anna, um, and we have two guests today um, who work with Alma Backyard Farms. Um, so I am I'm really happy to have Richard Garcia and Erica Cuellar here. Um, Richard's passion to grow food comes from a long line of Filipino farmers. A Los Angeles native, Richard lives to see that no life or land is wasted in the City of Angels. Richard studied at St. John's Seminary College and has extensive experience in pastoral ministry inside juvenile halls and prisons. As a pastoral minister, youth advocate, and urban farmer, Richard knows how growing food is a transformative way of bringing people together. Since completing an MA in pastoral theology at Loyola Marymount University, Richard incorporates principles of restorative justice into urban farming. And Erica Cuellar, an LA native and first-generation Mexican-American growing up in Watts, Erica witnessed how her community has been fraught with challenges in education and food insecurity. Undeterred by these challenges, Erica pursued a degree in education at Loyola Marymount University. Erica applied her studies to empower previously incarcerated women and men at Homegirl Cafe, a division of Homeboy Industries. Her years of social enterprise management ensures the integrity of Alma Backyard Farms mission and its financial viability. Erica's talent for landscape design was further advanced through her landscape architecture studies at UCLA's extension and through her work at project as project manager for a top-rated outdoor living company. Erica's passionate about teaching families and children how to grow and cook culturally relevant and flavorful meals. So um, I'm going to ask this question and then I'm going to let Anna do some talking. Um, <laughs> we like, we like to start our interviews with the question, um, what is your geography? What's the land, the food, the culture, space that shaped you? However you interpret that, uh, however you understand that, what is, what is your geography? So I, I grew up in a, in what's what's commonly referred to nowadays as K Town or Koreatown. Um, it's the East Hollywood part of Los Angeles. Um, a real mix of people. Uh, I think people in transition. Uh, a lot of a lot of folks who are immigrants, um, Latinos, uh, a variety of Latinos, Mexicans, Guatemalans. Asians, that include um, Koreans, Filipinos, um, just a diverse mix of people I, I, I would say I grew up around, which is representative of LA. Um, and I think it, it, it makes its way into um, cuisine. You know, there's a mix, music, um, but I think in, in regards to, uh, to land, um, my, my upbringing taught me how to value uh, land and the potential that land has. So somebody asked me the other day, like, what was my first experience of gardening? And maybe this helps to frame, uh, you know, my, my landscape. Uh, my mom, like a lot of Filipinos, are, she was a nurse. Right, she's a registered nurse, and so she um, she would come home to water in the morning from a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, work shift. But the thing that she would do besides go to 
she's pretty pretty devout uh, but, but the thing besides prayer that she would do was um, she would water the plants and there was a lot of therapy for her in that I, she worked in the ER uh, so it's one thing that she would do and I, I just noticed that it probably was one of the calming things you know, I probably should have had her water plants more often than whenever I was in an argument. I, was like, I should have directed her to go out there and go water the plants. Um, but that's that's kind of my, um, in terms of uh, where where I you know where I where I set root. Um, Filipino household, LA native, um, in spent a lot of time. Um, in church also, um, so that helps to shape my outlook with, with regards to growth. Um, yeah, I, um, I was born and raised in Los Angeles also. Um, uh, the, the, the land that I grew up in, um, in, in Los Angeles, um, particularly the, the South uh, Los Angeles area, um, more specifically, um, what's known as Watts, um, an area that um, growing up in the 80s there was uh, um, at that point predominantly uh, a black community. Um, my, my family, uh, my parents came to the U.S. Um, in, uh, in 1980 um, from Mexico, from Jalisco, uh, Mexico, a small town um, called Halos Totitlan. Um, near Guadalajara, um, where um, uh, very uh, fair-skinned Mexicans are from. So uh, my family, um, I grew up in Watts, uh, being the whitest Mexican family around. Um, <laughs> just confused a lot of people. Um, but uh, grew up with the sense of, uh, my, my parents um, were, you know, uh, farming, uh, growing up on, on farmland in Mexico, growing up in the rancho, um, where you grew what you ate. And uh, if you got rain, it was a good season. And if it didn't rain, everyone went hungry. Um, and so growing up with a sense of appreciation for what the land gives us, um, uh, particularly Watts being a community that has been um, West farmland, like a lot of uh, California and Southern California, um, and was was very much farmland up until you know the 1950s, 60s, um, where people would still walk down the street to get a, a fresh fresh milk. Um, so I think for for me, part of the attitudes that have shaped me and, and my culture and my upbringing is that. Um, the, that the land the land will provide for us um i grew up very catholic also um grew up very catholic um and a strong belief that god will provide um and that uh, we we each have our our own gifts to 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 live out and to live up to um and so uh you know um unfortunately a community like watts is very um broken by um, a lot of injustices, including food injustice and, and uh, criminal injustice and so um, and lack of green spaces and safe spaces. And so growing up in that environment, um, you know, put a desire in me to create spaces that, that um, fought against those injustices. And so um, 
I think that's the, 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 the land that I walk on is one that encourages me to not settle for, um, for, for what I had and to, and to continue uh, building up um, to provide more. Thank you both of you for those stories. I wonder if you could expand a bit on the geography to where you are sitting right now. So we're on Zoom so we can see the banana trees in the background. Um, but also knowing, having lived in LA myself in San Pedro, I know that um, I'm guessing that somewhat beyond those banana trees are neighborhoods and highways. And um, could you just flesh out the geography of, of where you are right now and, and, and the work, the neighborhoods that you're working in and with? Yes, I, I, I wanna know why you moved out of San Pedro though. It's like the last affordable beach town. <laughs> In it's a very long story that had factors outside of my control. <laughs> okay, well, we, we just established recently a small vacant um, piece of land was, was, was available for us to transform. And so we, we built out, it's, it's about a quarter of an acre. It's, a, you know. In San Pedro. In San Pedro. So we have a oh. small small there. Um, it's right off the 110. Offline conversation to have about that then. <laughs> But, but where we are, um, it, it was, um, like Erica said, Southern California has a rich history in, in farming. So down the street uh, is the owner of a, of a restaurant in Gardena. So um, behind us is, is South. And um, so towards the bananas is South. That's towards San Pedro. Um, Towards the west is, is, is Gardena, and there's, a, there's an owner of a, a restaurant called Painter's Tape at Sushi, and he said that his grandparents grew strawberries in, in Compton. And so when we gave him the, the, uh, the cross streets of Avalon and Compton, he said, you know what? That was the area where they were doing some strawberry growing. So that, that's part of the history here. It's also an interesting thing that at one point, um, this was a softball slash soccer field. Uh, and we are on the property of a church called St. Albert the Great. And it's, it's actually uh, elevated. And I think the land here may have been purposely elevated so that the church would sit high above the neighborhood, right? Um, and I think in its heyday, the grass was green. You know, the lawn was mowed down. Um, but I think, uh, you know, over the, the last 10 to 15 years, um, financially, I think the parish has struggled to, uh, to keep up its grounds and maintain its grounds, which meant that it was, uh, it was overrun by gophers and then the weeds were, when we took a look at the property, were knee-high shoulder high length uh, but it when we first visited the land in i think 2016 um for us it was a blank canvas mm -hmm. of, of possibility uh, and i had i had known the pastor then from my seminary days at saint john's he was we, we were um i think we were in the same class so he through a mutual friend says i have a lot of land and nothing's happening with it. 
Um, and because he knew, because of the relationship, he's, he was willing to take a risk. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's land, it, it seems like a, a, a no brainer. There's land, um, we need to create access for, for better food and we want to create job opportunities for people struggling to re-enter. So it could be a landmark of, of, of mercy and compassion and it could, you know, and then, and then thank, thanks be to God with regards to like Laudato Si had just come out. So we were just riding the wave, like let's, um, let's just ride the wave of, 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 you know, caring for our common home. So he, that was the pitch, right? I had to pitch something and say like, that, that's what makes this possible. And, and to date we've transformed about, uh, it's about three quarters of an acre. There, there is a new soccer field, it's artificial turf. It's, um, it's a smaller soccer field for the kids to play in from school. And it butts up against about three quarters of an acre of developed um, farm space. Um, we're growing mostly in raised beds, and it's it's um, we have quite a bit of a climate-appropriate landscape where where beneficial bugs, birds, bees uh, could inhabit. Uh, and um, yeah, so that you want to add to? Um, yeah, and I'll just add that. Um... A lot of what we're growing right now in, in LA, we're wrapping up what is um, like our second summer or like a, a fall. So we still have tomatoes in the ground um, that are wrapping up. We just wrapped up our eggplants. Um, we have the last bit of okra that is pushing through. Um, those are all summer loving veggies, um, but we also um, have our more cool season winter veggies in the ground. Lots of greens, mustards, collards, kale, lettuces, all of our root veggies. We're growing lots of beets and carrots. Um, so all of those are, are thriving um, at the moment. And then um, I'll just add to what Richard said, just to the west of us is a, a, a community, um, a trailer park community. So we're right adjacent to um, uh, uh, a community of, of, of trailer homes. And then behind us right now is the bustling Redondo Beach Boulevard, which is um, a pretty, um, high-speed street that runs through Compton here. Um, but we, we are in the neighborhood. Um, we're very much um, uh, an urban farm in the city, in the neighborhood, your neighborhood farm. Um, people can literally walk up to the farm uh, to get you know quality organic veggies. Um, that's one of the advantages of being an urban farm that you're actually in the neighborhood. So, um, Redondo Beach behind us, Avalon Boulevard to the, the west, and then north of us is Compton Boulevard, um, right on the west end of Compton. Yeah. Uh, just for a second, Richard, if we could go back, um, you mentioned Laudato Si, which uh, I know we probably have some listeners who are not Catholic and might not know what that is. Would you mind just saying a little bit about that? Sure. Um... Just to break it down into to, to terms that, that are maybe more understandable, I think the leader of the Catholic Church, uh, Pope Francis, um, invites um, Catholics and, and, and others with, with like-minded uh, thinking and similar persuasions to, to consider embodying really the spirit of, uh, of God's compassion in our world. And, and, and in one 
in one specific way, um, Pope Francis puts out a letter, I think it's called an encyclical. It's a letter that invites people to participate into considering a new way of living, a uh, new way of breathing. And, and in this particular letter, Laudato Si, he's, I think, calling, um, calling to mind and calling to attention something that, that's already existed in, 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 in our reality, that, um, but he's making it a point to stand with this, um, with this initiative to, to care for our common home, um, um, Earth, um, to value its resources and, and the interaction between uh, humans and, and, and the resources that the Earth provides, um, to be, be practices that are fair, guided by love, um, and, and the interdependence um, that we cannot exist without our Mother Earth. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the need to, to care for it is, is wholly dependent on the need to care for each other. And, I, you know, like just, to, you know, his, his namesake, Pope Francis, you know, based on um, St. Francis of Assisi, there's a, there's a deep relationship with nature and to care for it. Um, like Erica said, our well-being is interdependent on, on that reality. So I think um, I may have just butchered it because I I, <laughs> I, I I probably read like the first few pages. I, cool. um, it sounded right. It sounded right. <laughs> it sounded like what I what I what I think I know of it because I think I only read like a summary of it as well. So, but I think I think it's helpful to have that as background. So, if anyone from the Vatican is listening, uh, <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if that's the case, if someone from the Vatican is listening, we've like we've made it in a way that this podcast has never made it before. So that, that's right. If, I, if I anyone think, from the Vatican okay. wants to come on the show, we're happy to have you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> As I'm listening to your work, I, I, I will fully I will fully admit that when you talk about the places that you work, my only frame of reference for them, Compton, Watts, is '90s hip hop, like the stuff that I the stuff that I grew up with, and the reputation of places like Watts and Compton, and and those are kind of those are in my mind as, as someone who's never been there, they're rough places. They're hard places to do this kind of work. Um, how do you wrestle, I mean, with both the reality of, of the situations that you're dealing with in those, in those, in those neighborhoods and also the perception of what those neighborhoods are, because I'm sure I'm not the only one who hears those places, hears those names and has, maybe less than positive uh, connotations for them. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I grew up listening to, to you know, um, Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg mm -hmm. in eighth grade. And, um, and I, I think, um, what one, I think it, it's indicative of the sort of, of talent that exists in, 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 in neighborhoods um, like Compton, Long Beach, uh, Watts, East LA, Boyle Heights, South LA, and there's also a lot of, um, and I'm not trying to glorify the gang gang life at, at all, but I no. think there's a degree of swagger with regards to you know representing your neighborhood, and um, 
you know, I think even hip hop in its origin was is is is, is for positive things to take place and to take shape. And I think, you know, you know, rap artists even like Kendrick Lamar today give expression to to to, to realities that are um, that that people experience. There have been efforts by other other groups like, for instance, the Compton Cowboys, um, to help guide perception and, and show um, a more fair perspective of, of, of Compton, um, the sort of rich diversity that it has with its own history of being rich agricultural land, um, it being hub city where um, you could access the beach in 20 minutes, it's, you could access the airport in 20 minutes, it's, it's one of the places in LA where that rule of 20 minutes away is for real. Um, and I think- Depending on traffic and the time of day. Well, you know what? See, <laughs> or not even, is that what you're saying? Not even. <laughs> because we could get into this later, but there is a difference be between West side traffic and East side That's traffic. True. There, there's a big difference. Yeah. That's, that's another thing. But, but in regards to um, perception, I think, um, Part of what I think we're, we're doing is what we're unearthing or uncovering um, what may be missed. And, and, and that, that being said, it's, it's like uncovering the rich land that was underneath layers of weeds, rubbish. Um, we're unearthing that and uncovering that to reveal um, a new emergence of, of, of plant life. And I think that's something similar in regards to what's taking place in neighborhoods like Compton and Watts, where there's there's a revelation of the sort of talent here. Um, there are rough spots, and that's 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 historically true. It's there are rough spots, um, but I think, uh, but I think that goes to show and reveal, you know, the grit that a lot of people have. Um, I, I wanted to point out one other thing um, in terms of the lay of the land. And the sort of connection I know that the parish here, the historically black parish, ha had a number of Catholics that came from Louisiana. What's what's neat about that migration is it it's still it's still in a way continues at, at some real depth. And I'm going to share share this story real briefly if you, if you if you'd allow me to. It's it's a story of um of Linda. She's a grandmother of one of the kids who attends our weekly gardening program. Um, she hears about the garden. She's a parishioner. And because this space has been kind of out of sight, out of mind, no one really cares or knows about it until she hears about it from her grandson, who's telling her about tasting hummus for the first time in class. So it, it, it piques her curiosity to go out here and see what's going on. And then she discovers that we're growing a particular type of mustard greens. And she says to us, this is the Chinese kind. I have the kind that we like, right? <laughs> and so she tells her brother to send her mustard green seeds and we end up propagating and those seeds and they've become the mustard greens that we grow here. And um, I think that that exhibits that, that, that migration of food and that, that con continuation of, of heritage and, and, and legacy and life. Um, but she's not only done that with, with the mustard green, she's also done that with, with the okra. When she noticed we had a type of okra that wasn't the type that 
that she was accustomed to. It was very good, nevertheless, but she was like, I got seed. And, and the sort of information that's passed along. So we grew it from seed and we were a little skeptical because it wasn't, um, it wasn't producing as much fruit as we were hoping. So we asked her, um, how is it that we could get this to produce more fruit because it just doesn't seem to be um, shooting any blossoms out. So she talks to her brother in Louisiana. He says to her, they just have to cut the water off cut the water off in a week, they're jamming. We're getting okra. It, it goes from like three pounds to like 15 pounds. Um, you know, that, that that's to say, I think, um, you know, in regards to like, you know, the misconception, um, I think it's, it's just a dominant perspective, you know, um, of, of um, Compton being the hub for for like gangster rap and, 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 and a lot of violence on the streets. Um, but they're also, and I think that's kind of a, uh, you know, I'm gonna butcher scripture, but you know, where, you know, grace aligns itself also in those areas. And I think even maybe all the more powerful, uh, but sometimes it's just easy to miss because, um, you know, the rap tunes are, are bumping pretty loudly, so. Um, but but also like, um, in addition to the the rich history of like talent and hip hop that Compton has had, there's also that rich history of farmland that the media doesn't always you know uh, give as much attention to, and so if if you were to drive through Compton today, there are people on horsebacks throughout Compton. Hmm. Uh, Richard mentioned the Compton Cowboys, uh, predominantly uh, black cowboys. Um, and then there are the Compton Vaqueros, predominantly uh, Latino cowboys. And they're, they're known in Compton. Um, also people have like goats and cows and pigs in their backyards in Compton today. And so it's, it's this rich history of, of farming where there was the migration. So you have, you know, California, was you know the growing capital of the world for so long and then you have the migration of folks coming from the the south um coming into neighborhoods like compton and then you have the migration of folks coming in from latin america um and you know settling in these neighborhoods coming into compton and finding that it's still very rich in its farming roots and maintaining it where here we are this year um it is such a rich part of the community's culture and um so what we're doing is nothing novel um what we're doing is 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 finding a way to to address the issues that have been affecting so much this community in a way where the community can embrace it and understand it so um yeah thank you for that i think that's so that's, that's that's such a good thing for for me to hear as as someone who only has those 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 very surface level references to the city that's really excellent to know and i just love the way that you just i feel like i just see a map in my head of you know you we stretch out okay here's here's the city of la here's la county but then a, a, a layers of map of and and who who and what has been happening there over time and that you can quickly trace the there's been farming and then there's been farming and then there's been farming and there's and now there's farming and that to um 
acknowledge that this, you know, I think sometimes they can get caught up in the, in the, you know, food and farming and urban farming circles of being like, and it's this new cool thing. And it's like, no, it's just this thing that's been happening and that um, our generations upon generations have been doing. So how do we do it now and in this context? And just really appreciate the way that you, keeping that in the forefront of the conversation. Um, so I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about who, you know, we've gotten some little glimpses of, you know, the, the people who are interacting with the land and the plants and each other, but um, who is farming on this land now? And what is the context? Um, what, is it, what does it look like to, you know, if, if we were to show up on a Thursday afternoon or, or other times during the week, what, what would we find and how, how might someone be engaging that work? Yeah, so, um... Pre-COVID, pre-COVID, we we, um, we had cohorts of, of formerly incarcerated folks uh, participate in our, our urban agriculture training program, um, which gave them which gave them lots of exposure to um, project-based learning, where uh, folks who have had little to no experience handling certain tools a circular saw, a miter saw, they would learn to use these tools in the hopes that they, they, they follow through with the career path of, 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 of getting work in, in fields related to construction, union work. Uh, and so our farm has been built um, extensively by folks who have been impacted by the justice system. Um, if you were to come around today, um, our folks are involved in leading the effort to distribute what we grow um, through our grocery kits. Um, Pre-COVID, we'd have a monthly farm stand where we'd have the food we grow and other carefully sourced items, um, pantry staples or grocery items um, available here monthly. Um, thanks to COVID, we actually accelerated are intensive growing. Um, so we're growing more intensively and we've partnered with a lot of local organizations to fill these bags. So now we've pivoted from having a farm stand on site to having grocery kits free available curbside. Um, the one thing about, about programming though, and I, I think I, I wanted to point this out is um, you know, as as a as a nonprofit organization, we have the responsibility to 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 evaluate what we do, and and, and part of evaluation is to uh, take a look at quantitative and qualitative measures. I think that's that's kind of a general thing that happens, but I wanted to point out that um, in terms of what happens here, um, because we don't we don't. Yes, it, it, it is the case that we grow food to feed people. Um, but we, we farm to satisfy a deeper hunger. And I wanted to make that clear because I think people come, if, if you were to visit and when you visit, because I think you're going to visit one day, you know, folks visit and they want to know the technical thing like, oh, how did you do that? And how are you watering this? And, and, and 
the way we learn that is we apprenticed ourselves to people who are um, who are experts in the field. I mean, that's the best way to learn, I think, um, in, in this regard. But I, I always um, make it a point, um, you know, unsolicited or not, I will make it a point to, to, to share with people that our growing effort is, is to, to nourish and satisfy a deeper hunger. And, and that hunger, I believe, is, is one for community and kinship. Um, and I'm, I'm making that point because, you know, when, when, we, when we train someone in regards to using a miter saw or using a, um, a circular saw, um, there's the precision in the cut. And so there's, you know, you use a square, you use a tape measure, where do you mark the line? Um, are you cutting on the line or are you cutting to the right of the line or to the left of the line? And, and a, lot of, a lot of the approach to, to that work is, is, is discernment. There's a discern, discernment dimension to that. But what's more important is this, and I believe this, is if, if someone who's been impacted by the justice system has had a significant portion of his or her life being told that, um, that they can't be trusted because their, their hands have harmed somebody, I think teaching someone to use um, a circular saw or a miter saw where you have to pull a trigger, and this is big for me because I think a lot of people who have been impacted by the system have, have, have had a history of, of, of being misled and, 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 and maybe even pulling the trigger of a, of a gun. But I think there's a, there's a renewed sense of pulling the trigger with precision to build life versus taking it away. And I think that's the sort of training that happens in regards to trust and rebuilding trust and restoring someone's capacity to believe in themselves as someone who could contribute. So like, I'm sharing this with you because it's, it's not what you'll necessarily see. You may see me telling somebody to not make a mistake of more than a quarter of an inch and in a cut, but, but really what's happening is I'm, I'm, I'm making the effort, we are making the effort to say to somebody, we trust you and we trust that you can build again. Right. And I think that's, that's the part that I, I would hope people see more of or in, in an instance where, um, where uh, say for instance, Adolfo plants a seed, right? And yeah, he knows now how to plant the seed, how deep uh, to plant the seed, um, and how to harvest once the seed produces its fruit. But what's, what's really taking place there is a sense that Adolfo has returned home after incarceration because he sees that the food is going to nurture somebody else's life. And, and these are true stories of people who have said to us, I don't necessarily know how to give back what I took away. Yeah. But when they see that the food feeds a mouth and they've made a connection with someone picking up at the curbside who so happens to be a single mom with a number of kids and they know that the food they grow feeds her and her kids, they have told us that they felt like that was the moment they returned home. Mm. And so in terms of what you see at the farm, yeah, you will see, you know, beautiful rows of fruits and you will see people digging. Um, 
But if there's something I'd really want people to see, it'd be that. Um, and that's what that's what's taking place. But it's happening in these simple acts of, you know, breaking a sweat and turning compost, you know? But underneath that is is this reality that we hope to 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 create uh, and participate in. Thank you, thank you for that. That I mean, I, I I wanted I wanted to I wanted to ask specifically about the needs of of the previously incarcerated returning citizens. Um, but I, I feel like what you've what you've just said really puts a, a fine point on on sort of what that population needs. Um, coming out and and knowing that there are people who will trust them, people who will give them a second chance and give them a opportunity to build instead of to destroy or the or at least the perception that they've destroyed. Um, that, is, is there anything else you want to add to just sort of the the needs of that population and 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 how how this kind of work has brought meaning to to them on the opposite side of of being involved with the justice system in regards to working with folks who've been previously incarcerated i think um the reality of re-entry and returning citizenship or returning citizens rather is 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 one more explicitly um maybe it, it seems to me it's more explicitly known now that um as we venture off into a post-COVID reality, all of us in one way or another are returning. We're returning mm. to what people call a new normal or there's a new paradigm shift. But I, I've noted this about our work in regards to transforming space with folks who have been previously incarcerated. Um, what happens is that the space is transformed. We're both there's no us and them. There's, there's the urban farm and you have formerly incarcerated folks who have helped to shape this land. And you have folks from the neighborhood looking to source healthy food as well. And so what takes place is a space is created where this new interaction could happen, where um, it's not about us and it's not about them. It's about coming together um, because of food and food becomes um, the first order of conversation. Um, and it so happens to be pretty cool that someone who was locked up could do this. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's what I, I'd wanna say about um, being informed um, as to what needs are I think there are very many educated guesses about what the needs could be. Um, and I, I'm saying this in regards to training because I, I'm a believer in, 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 in job skills and, and, and the sort of employability that, that allows somebody to have. But I think with, with a community that believes in somebody, right? You're, we're, we're, more in a position of, of um, making, we're offering someone the experience of feeling so loved that their decision um, to fall in love with life is one that is lasting 
versus one that is like, let me get a $20 an hour job. Um, but if, if underneath that, I don't like my life and I hate life, the job's not going to last. Right. Um, so that, that's one thing I wanted to point out and I'll, I'll stop ranting. Well, and, and I'll just uh, thank you for sharing that Richard, because I think what we, what we do as Alma is, is we really um, utilize urban farming as the means to, to obtain that, to do that sort of work that Richard just described, the work that is, that is deeper, um, that really connects us to each other. Um, and, and the needs of folks who are reentering are, you know, yes, there's housing and yes, there's employment and training and that there's, there's, there's the need for, for, for food and money and all of those are our needs that, um, that are very, very present. But um, we do, um, our work focuses also on like partnering with other organizations who assist with those sort of uh, needs. Um, and, and we focus um, a lot more on the healing and restorative work that can take place through urban farming that can help people tap into that community, that love, that trust, that, uh, that we hope will, will help them get further in life. This all just feels so deeply true that there, I think this is where just the work of intersection of food and faith or farming and our spirituality, like that, that human dignity, that image of God and all people that, it all gets mixed together. And I, I just, I so appreciate the, the framing that this is, this is a mechanism to do that work. And I, I think that farming can be, is a very, it's like a rich platform, right? Like there's, there's a lot there to work with, but that the deeper work is, is this deeply human piece that um, you're able to, to engage and to onto there. Um, and I do, I wonder, you know, I think both of you have touched on some of your own faith experiences and you're on a, you know, church property. Um, and I hold this term very loosely, but what, what, where would you see spiritual practice? Like, how does that, how does that engage and inform um, the work? I mean, being someone who thinks it's all spiritual practice, right? Like that there's, you know, but that, how, how do you, how do you see that in, in some more um, specific ways being part of, of what happens at the farm? I am, um, I, I'm in total agreement with you in regards to, um, you know, um, it's, 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 um, it's, there's, there's not a, a separation between um, the spiritual life and this everyday life. Um, I, you know, I, I struggle with, 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 um, with, um, you know, things within, within, within any human, within any human institution, there's always going to be drama, right? Um, what, um, and I'll give you, give you this example. So I, I, um, you know, I, 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 I've had, I've, I've been influenced by, by, by Jesuit spirituality heavily, um, part of my, my experience in, inside prisons was, was helping to facilitate retreats based on Ignatian meditation. Um, but really, it, it was a matter of honoring the, the already deeply contemplative dimension of folks who were, were locked up for a long time. Um, and, um, you know, like, 
the structure of prisons is 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 is, is monastic. You have your cell, you have your you have your bed, you have your your bathroom. It, it's kind of this this closed um, um, circumstance where where in, in in terms of prison, I think you're forced to to contemplate, um, and then you you learn your, your to have, have certain freedoms from from being able to to, to contemplate to meditate, um, but in regards to um, to, um, to to faith, I think um, you know I I think it, it it only it's only fair to say that um, it's an experience of, of of tasting and savoring the reality of of being unconditionally loved um you know and this i mean maybe it's happened more ex- explicitly in the space of a of a retreat but um you know our our work it has been largely inspired by you know father greg boyle of homeboy industries and and um you know he'll say often uh, and um he'll say often live live the truth as if it were true um, but but he's made the proclamation of of us having a God that loves us without measure and without regret, um, and you know if we were to really just um, and I I'll speak personally having having really chewed on that you know you know we're talking about food here and if that's food and I, I've chewed on that and I've swallowed it wholeheartedly. Um, and I've savored it and I've tasted it. Um, it's the very thing that compels me every day. Um, I don't look for motivation. I, I, I rather dig into drive. Um, and I, you know, like good old Jesuit high school education. Um, I know that I have a, a, an MA in pastoral theology but I, I, I would say, and not to downplay my learning in higher education, but the theology that I, I learned at Loyola High School with, with things like love is a choice um, and to feel compelled to make that decision every day, um, it's, it's, that, that's probably my grounding. Um, you know, and then... It's funny because throughout all of my life, and this is still so funny because it happens to di- still to this day. My mom is a very devout Catholic, you know. She'll call me on holy days of obligation <laughs> out of the blue. <laughs> out of the blue. I could be doing something and she'll be like, you know what today is. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she will ask me if I've gotten a mask. Now, I think it's, I think it's, um, so it's, it's not just this personal experience of having savored um, the reality of a God that loves all of us without measure. I think it's, it's, it's deeply rooted in, in a community that also looks out for each other. And then I'm going to, I'm going to point out my mother, cause I'm sure she's praying um, <laughs> for what, you know, what we do. Um, so I think I'm sustained by those realities. Um, and then I'll turn it to Erica in regards to what, what you want to share. I, I, I think you covered a lot of, of um, 
lot of what I would agree with, what I do agree with. And I would just, um, you know, emphasize again that it, um, the spiritual is not, uh, it's not separate. You can't compartmentalize spirituality and then everyday life. Um, it's, I think, um, you know, I, I personally, um, every morning ground myself in the reality that I, that I am loved and I am in this world, um, um, loved as I am and, and, and go on with my day with that, you know, accepting that reality. Um, so I, I think that, um, that, that to, to, to take it as, as, as a whole, that, that the, the spiritual is, is, um, is life. Um, it's not something separate is, is, um, I don't know. It's just, it, it really, it, I think that I believe that to be the, the truth. Yeah. I think we do. I think we do as well. And, um, Richard, I'm going to be sitting with that idea of prison as monastic for a while. Like I'm going to have to chew on that for a little bit. Like the idea of prison sort of almost being a forced monasticism. Uh, there, there is, cause there is something very, uh, having had many experiences with uh, formerly incarcerated people, I don't think they would have used that term, but what they're describing is very much like a, a monastic experience. Um, that's really profound. Erica, I wanted to go back to something that is in your, in your bio. You talk about one of your passions being teaching people to cook culturally relevant and flavorful meals. Can you talk to me a little bit about what is the importance for you of, of, of culturally relevant meals? What, is, what does that mean for you and what does that mean for your community? Yeah, so the Compton and really LA as a whole is a, a we are a food insecure city. Um, we do not, uh, you know, the, the, the irony is that we we are a city that has some of the best food in the world, some of the best chefs, and at the same time, the highest rates of food insecurity. Um, and that, that, that's just, it's just not right. Um, and, and really what, what a lot of food insecurity boils down to, it's, it's the reality that, that you know, low-income communities of color just don't have access to quality, wholesome ingredients. Um, there is the, 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 the belief that, you know, you have to drive out of your neighborhood in order to find good food. Um, and so when we talk about increasing access, um, it's, it's so important to, to take into, um, into consideration who is living in these communities, uh, because access for, um, you know, one ethnicity and one culture is very different than it is for another. Um, you know, kale, for example, has been, you know, deemed one of the healthiest um, ingredients that had quite a craze for a few years. Um, you can't force kale down people's throats. Um, just because it's healthy doesn't mean everybody wants to eat it or likes it. Um, and so what's important when we talk about um, educating people um, and, 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 you know, bringing access into neighborhoods is to, is to really look at what are folks eating, what, um, you know, what, what are cultural foods that are present, um, and how do we increase the access to those ingredients so that those ingredients can be wholesome and organic and 
carefully grown and sourced. And so um, I'll give you an example. Um, if you go to, to the nearest grocery store um, here in Compton, if you go down to like Food for Less, you go to the, the food section, um, first of all, it's not going to smell very good. The grocery store isn't going to be, you know, if you're activating your senses when you walk in, it's not a pleasant experience to really walk into the store. Um, it, the smells aren't appealing. Um, the produce section, it's not, um, it's not Whole Foods. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's not bright, colorful, fresh um, options are limited. But if we're going to look specifically at like, let's say collard greens, you know, a, a staple in the black community, the collards that you're going to find at, you know, your local grocery store here are going to be bottom of the barrel collards, you know, yes, they're going to be there, but they are going to likely, um, you know, have some yellow and some white on there and they're gonna they're not gonna look very fresh um they're not gonna look as good as as they would um driving into the west side of la um and and that's like a, a common staple in 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 your know, black cooking um and so you can't you know you, you when we talk about access it's really about increasing what what do people what do people need what do they want and so how do we increase the access to ingredients that are are actually um, what people are looking for. And so, uh, when our farm stand was open, we um, we did a lot of cooking demonstrations, uh, where you know we were able to uh, do cooking demos with um, vegetables that maybe aren't um, as frequently used or that are used, but showing people how to use them in different ways. And so. Um, really saying like, you know, these are, this is an ingredient that you likely have at home. And these are, you know, many different ways that you can use it that um, maybe you haven't been accustomed to. So instead of um, trying to say, let's change your diet. And let's, you know, let's say that you, you haven't been eating healthy. Um, and my way has to be your way. Um, that's not going to work. You know, that's sort of this colonizer uh, mindset that you, what you're doing is wrong and what I'm doing is right. And this is the only way that you can be healthy. Um, and so not doing that and really exciting people about, um, you know, ingredients that are already present in our cultures and how we can increase, you know, access and use of them. Um, and then through our like youth program, we get to excite kids at a very young age about, you know, growing food and cooking food and using these ingredients at a very young age so that they begin to develop a palate. Um, and in the end, you know, not just a palate for better foods, but, a, a, you know, a palate and an appetite for, for change and for, and, and for um, long-term change in our community. So, um, you know, that's where a lot of this, like, you know, culturally relevant dialogue comes from where, you know, we can't impose healthy ways. Um, otherwise we go into this whole realm of like, you know, um, food elitism and, 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 and other things that we don't want to be going into. Thank you for that. Well, we are aware that we would like to talk to you forever. And we've let this interview on very long because I just want to keep these conversations going, but we want to honor your time. Um, and we're so grateful for your time. And so we always end our um, time together with this question of what brings you hope. And we talk about it being not that kind of hope that pushes aside the problems or the struggles, but that deep hope that gets you up in the morning, that deep, lasting hope that gives us the courage to 
tackle new things. Um, and I'd just be curious for, for both of you, what is, what is it that is sustaining you in this season? My spiritual director in college, Sister Peg Dolan, rest in peace, would, would say, and this is the first thing that, that came to mind uh, when you asked this question, she would say, dream big, big enough to fulfill God's dream for you. And that, that's, the, that's the hope that I have that gets me up in the morning that God has dreamed up, you know, this, this big dream for me and it's up to me to live up to it. And so if I, if I don't get after it every day, I'm not doing it. And so um, that, that's, that's really what, what gets me out of bed every morning. Sometimes it's a little harder than others, but I think it's that reality that, um, that the, that the dream's been chosen. I just got to show up. It's mm. beautiful. Uh, um, so I, there, there, there's, um, ways I get through the months and usually I'll, I'll, um, there'll be a word, a phrase, um, you know, I think with, with Christmas, I think that the phrase word made flesh is probably, it runs through my mind in the morning and it runs through my day. Um, but I'll, I'll, this may sound so trite. It may sound so silly, but if, if you catch me looking down, let me just, well, this guy is with me here. And Aww, puppy dog. <laughs> so, it's, 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 he's a Korean Jindo. This is Chance, and then his little brother's right there. And um, part of my reality is to wake up and make sure that they're fed yeah. in the morning. And sometimes it started off as, as a as a 4.30 a.m. thing, a 4 a.m. thing, and then it actually shaped me into becoming more of a, a morning person. But it's this. It's, okay, it sounds so silly, but um, ha having... Having the, the dogs, they're, they're so happy in the morning. Hmm. It doesn't matter the day before. It does not matter. And so <laughs> this has been the thing lately. I, I tell myself if I could just be as happy as they are in the morning. Uh, <laughs> so, so in a way, what, what I'm getting at is... Um, what keeps me hopeful is, is is trusting in the in the reality that 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 there is tomorrow and and you know and and just about about it's it's kind of taken taken shape this way with, with I'm always thinking maybe because of the theology and stuff it's like what's God's revelation like um, what's God's revelation like and that's a question I'm always asking myself and and I think. It's, I know that, you know, it's, it's, it's colder when the sun's about to rise. So, so knowing, knowing that these moments, like, even with, with the COVID-19 crisis, you know, what, what I would have hoped for more in regards to the, the conversation about churches and church closures, and I know you're asking, you're not asking me about this, but it, 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 it goes in, in the direction of, of hope is knowing in our human history 
how God's revealed God's self in, in, in moments that are just so dire and desolate. I think knowing that we stand on shoulders who've had that real experience of the Exodus, right? We stand on that reality more than the news of churches closing and, the, and then the need for modifying worship is I think it's become more prominent for me to ask in this particular historical context, what is God's revelation? And so that's been saturating my perspective and it's gotten me out because I'm so curious to see what that light, what that may be like today. Um, so that's, that's keeping, keeping me going right now. Thank you. Thank you both for that. I think, yeah, I think that's, it's, it's, this moment is calling us to pay attention to what God might be revealing um, through, through some hard things and, and in some unexpected ways. So thank you for drawing our attention to that. Um, where can people connect with you and your work? What are some ways that they can see what you're doing and, and learn more about you? Um, on Instagram, so at Alma Backyard Farms and on our website at almabackyardfarms.com. Excellent. And we will put um, both links to both of those in the show notes um, and make sure that people have ways of connecting with you. Um, Richard, Erica, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing. Um, this has been just a, a real joy to hear a bit more about your work and learn more about you. And uh, I, you know, I do, I, I do think I will make my way out there at some point because I, I would love to see what you're doing firsthand. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as soon as I can get back out again to visit, um, I'll, I'll, I'd love to come by and meet you in person and see your sites and um, love to have some other conversations about some other connections. I hope to be able to um, foster in that urban farming in LA is still very close to my heart. So it's so exciting to hear what other people are doing. Thank you so, so much for sharing your stories. Thank you. Thank you both for, um, for being with us today. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org. <laughs>